This is an ABC podcast. Hello, book lovers. It's Claire Nichols here with new stories to share here on The Book Show. Today, we're searching for the right words, quite literally, with Rodney Hall, a man who, yes, reads the dictionary for fun. We'll drill down on the loaded meaning of words like witch and fishwife with the historical fiction writer Karen Brooks. And you'll hear how Creole, Patois and Jamaican English are blended to magical effect in Cordella Forbes' new novel, A Tall History of Sugar. It's a celebration and consideration of the power of language here on The Book Show. From her home in Hobart, Karen Brooks writes stories of women forgotten by history. Karen is the author of 13 books, including historical fiction and young adult fantasy novels. And that's not all. She's also an academic, a social commentator, a columnist. She was even part of the Brains Trust on The Einstein Factor on ABC TV. There is a lot for us to talk about. So, Karen Brooks, it's lovely to meet you. Oh, thank you, Claire. It's lovely to meet you too. Karen, can we start with your home in Hobart? Because this has its own history, doesn't it, this house? Yeah, it does. It's a beautiful convict-built Georgian house. And um, it was built 150 years ago this year. And apparently, the former premier of Tasmania, a a man named Watchhorn, lived and died in it. I believe it's also been a whorehouse. And um, I just feel, you know, it, it whispers and it's got so many stories to tell. And the front of the house is quite extraordinary and it's one of only two, I believe, in Hobart that actually has the little arrows of the convicts um, engraved in all the bricks. So it's quite quite extraordinary and, and it's known, there's a, a twin house next door and we're known as the stone houses. So as, as if we're the only stone houses in the place, but we're not, but we are of a particular type. And yeah, it's really lovely. It sounds like an incredibly inspiring place to write. Oh, it sure is. And, uh, you know, you do feel the presence of those past, not in any sinister way. And I don't know that I completely believe in that sort of thing, but you just know that there's history there. And and when you walk up and down the stairs or you touch the walls, you know that people from the past have, and you just often wonder about their stories and what their lives were like. And yeah, yeah, it's a really extraordinary place. I feel like it's a privilege to live there and we're sort of the custodians rather than the owners. And one day we'll pass it on to somebody else too. A great place for a historical fiction writer to live. Are we ever going to see a book of yours set in this house perhaps? Oh, that's such a good question. I don't know. Uh, A story hasn't struck me yet, but having said that, the house and certain rooms have appeared in other stories. You know, you you sort of transform them and you draw on the energy, I guess, you feel in a room. And so it does appear in drips and drabs (laughs) in other stories. Wow. I'm going to keep an eye out for that. Um, (laughs) Now, you took a while to find your way to writing Karen. Um, You you were an actress for over 18 years. Uh, What did you do? What did you perform? Oh, look, I I started off, my very first professional production was in Sydney at at, um, North Sydney Independent Theatre, and I played Puck in A Midsummer's Night Dream. That was a long, long time ago. And then I I did pursue or thought I wanted to pursue for a while a professional career, but sadly it didn't happen. And 
I joined the army, as you do when you don't <laughs> make it into NIDA. And um, I basically uh, was in the army for five years, but the entire time I was there, and indeed while I was studying and later became an academic, I kept a finger in um, really good quality amateur theatre and directed a few productions and performed in a few too. So, And I taught drama. I taught drama to young people oh, for about 10 years. And I really, really enjoyed that. But when my studies became quite serious, uh, and I was a single parent at that stage too, with two young children, something had to give. So I gave up teaching drama and just really focused on um, studying and getting a half-decent qualification. In the Army, you were in the Survey Corps. What's what's the Survey Corps and what did you do there? I was a map maker. I was a cartographer. And um, yeah, just uh, I was in charge of what was called at first orthophoto mapping, which was fundamentally used in tanks and armoured personnel carriers, APCs. And um, they were read under infrared light. So they were like, if you you can imagine um, going on Google Earth and looking at a satellite map, that's fundamentally what it was, but then we, my, my troop would uh, impose uh, all the roadways and the contour lines and that in, in a type of ink that could be read under the um, under infrared conditions. So they were used in uh, military manoeuvres. They were used in the Falklands War. I was in the army during the Falklands War and uh, yeah, things like that. And then I moved into RAF mapping, which is the Royal Australian Air Force. So for pilots and things like that, which was a completely different style of mapping but really interesting nonetheless. When I think of the army, I think of, you know, structure, routine, being buttoned up. It's kind of the opposite of being an actress. It's really hard for me to to bring these two (laughs) ideas together into one person, Karen. Do you know, in many ways, they're not dissimilar. I I get completely where you're coming from, but the weird thing is that they're not that dissimilar because you do need discipline and structure to be an actor. You know, you need to learn your lines. You need to be on time. You're part of a team. Everybody's relying on you and your performance. And in the army, it's very much the same. And yes, there there are differences, of course, but I found um, having been an actor, I performed, dare I say, um, quite quite well in the army. I mean, I, in some ways I was a terrible officer because I was only 19 and suddenly I was being called ma'am and uh, given probably a level of respect that I hadn't yet earned and just came with the rank. And, um, you know, I, I struggled a bit with that. And uh, But I had marvellous, marvellous non-commissioned officers, my staff sergeant, my warrant officers, my corporals. They were just amazing. And really, I worked with some amazing, wonderful people very talented people. Um, but yeah, and and I think now being a writer, what it also taught me was that amazing discipline and great time management. So I'm, I'm very strict about my writing. So it's funny how life takes you on these incredible journeys and you think, you know, what, what was I thinking? What was I doing, doing those other things in my past, but how they all collectively come together and somehow help you in, your, in the present. It's really quite remarkable. Karen, your writing focuses on women in history. Why write about women? A couple of reasons. Um, One, I guess it's the feminist in me that um, is very aware that uh, when we look back on history, you know, there's 50% of the population's voices and stories are, are missing. Now, not entirely now, of course, we've had revisionist historians and all sorts of wonderful people um, desperately trying to um, 
I guess, bring these voices and these stories forward. And we've had this now for quite some time, the diaries, the um, and wonderful, wonderful biographies of royals, you know, um, queens and princesses and uh, the nobility and things like that, but also, you know, women who've made their impression on history. I love all those, but I'm also interested in the women who who were perhaps illiterate or, or didn't have the opportunity to do that and what their contribution was. So I turn to women in trade in particular because I, I often think that we talk about, you know, say blacksmiths, bakers, butchers, whatever. And again, I'm talking um, historically, but I guess also in the present too. And we often forget that um, many of these people were married and not only did they have wives who supported them and and, and did what they did to, you know, around the domestic space. But many of these women, in fact, the majority of these women also functioned in the trade, if not the same trade, certainly a complementary trade. So, for example, a miller, you know, who who uh, ground flour and, and did all that sort of stuff, his wife was often a brewer because that's a, you know, it, it's a grain is a byproduct of um, both. So I became fascinated by these almost invisible women, well, they're invisible at one level, but another, we know they're there. So what are their stories and what did they do? And and it's actually quite remarkable when you go digging. And again, it's because um, they were overlooked often in, in the writing of history or the recording of history, if you like. Yeah. So you've written books like The Brewer's Tale, The Locksmith's Daughter. These come under the Harlequin imprint of HarperCollins, does that make you a romance writer, Karen? Um, it's really interesting. A couple of things there. Um, Harlequin um, don't just produce romance. They produce a whole range of stories. And um, one of the imprints that um, is also part of the Harlequin one is Mirror, which is literary fiction. And that's what those two books were published under as well. But I think in terms of romance, it's funny. It's a word that's often devalued when we talk about reading and yeah. writing and literature. And I really, I really find that problematic because I think that every single book, no matter what genre or type it is, is a romance. And at the very least, it's a romance with the reader because, you know, the writer wants you to fall in love with the book, the characters, whether it be a murder mystery or science fiction. And often anyway, in these stories, there is a romance at the core and it might be between a man and a woman. It might be between two men. It might be two women, or it might just be about friendship or family, but romance and love and all those emotions and feelings are at the core. So I really find it funny that um, we trivialise romance. We trivialise the people that read it and write it. And yet it's one of the best-selling genres in the world. And it, you know, I, I'm so grateful to the the women and men who write romance because they they keep publishing and 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 you know writers and readers, they they keep us ticking over and keep it viable. So go romance. So I I d I don't write what would be considered romance, you know, as a genre, but there is romance in my books. I guess also, that romance is, when you think about it, quite a, a feminised, a feminine word. Maybe that has something to do with the fact that romance writing has been devalued. Ah, uh, beautiful. I really like that, Claire. Yes, I agree with you. I think that it is the case. And it, yeah, and, and it was sort of, um, yeah, and it's also called women's fiction as though men don't enjoy it. And yet I know a number of men who really enjoy romance, the genre, and I know a couple of men who actually write very good romance, excellent romance. 
Yeah, we've talked to a couple of them on the show before. But anyway, as you say, your book is historical fiction. There is some romance there, but it is a piece of historical (laughs) fiction. It's called The Darkest Shore, and it's based on a real-life historical event. This was a witch hunt in the town of Pittenweem in Scotland at the start of the 18th century. Karen, how did you come across this story? Yeah, it was... um a series of wonderful accidents in some ways. Basically, I was going to a wedding in Scotland, in Glasgow, for a friend, and there was a group of actually 43 Tasmanian people travelling, not together, um, but uh, I was talking to one of the other um, people going, a very good friend of mine named Mark Nicholson, who's a wonderful raconteur and teacher, and he said, you know, Karen, if you're looking for a story while you're over there, you should look into the Herring Lasses. Now, the Herring Lasses were was the name given to the women who used to travel along the coast of Scotland during the fishing season and they would take the catch from the men, they would clean and gut the fish and repair the nets and all that, the lines and everything, and then go and sell them. And as the fishing industry became bigger and bigger and bigger um, and became industrialised, their role became really cemented and they became incredibly important to the economic viability of the industry. But of course, these women were really brash and independent and 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 loud and um, the men loved them. I think some of the village people that they in the villages they used to travel uh, didn't like them because they talked back and they didn't know their place. So hence the term fishwife has come down to us as quite a derogatory term. So he said, I reckon you might find a story about the herring lasses. And another friend, Bill Lark, said, yes, yes, you've got to look at the herring lasses. They're amazing. They're wonderful. So I'm thinking, yep, yep, yep. And I was getting really excited and I could feel goosebumps traveling all over my body. And then Mark leaned over and he said, you know, some of the fishwives were accused of witchcraft and that was it. I, you just know, you know, I thought there's a story. So I started doing research here, but what I didn't expect when I finally got to Scotland and after the wedding, um, myself, my husband and two of our friends, Kerry Doyle and Peter Goddard, we went to the little group of villages on the East Coast in the Firth of Forth and we went to Pittenweem. In fact, we stayed in Anstruther, which is the neighbouring village and it's only about a, a half hour walk away. And we went to the Fisheries Museum there so I could learn more about these herring lasses and fishwives. And it was just eye-opening and incredible. It was something I knew nothing about. But when I went to the bookshop at the end to buy some books there and talk to somebody in charge, he came out and he was very affable and, and, and really helpful and very lovely. And I had a pile of books already in my hand. And I said, look, I've been told that some of the fishwives were involved in witchcraft. I'm wondering if you can tell me anything about that. And immediately his demeanour changed and he became really hostile. And he pointed at me and almost prodding my chest and saying, what a load of rubbish. I wish I could do the beautiful Scottish accent because it doesn't sound nearly as offensive. Um, What a load of rubbish. There was no witchcraft here. I don't know what you're talking about. And Apparently, my husband and my friends, had uh, they were, they'd walked away and they heard the tone and they turned around and all they saw was me pick up one of the books from the pile I had, which was called The Weem Witch. And I said, if that's the case, why are you selling this book? And he mumbled something about, oh, well, it was written by a local and I've got no choice, but... And I thought, right, there's a story here. <laughs> so, yeah, we basically trotted off to Pitt and Weem and found our witches. And these were real women from history. They were accused of witchcraft. What happened to these women? Look, it was really incredibly awful. And I I feel like I 
I have a real duty to these women. And there was seven, seven people, right, six women and one man. Fundamentally what happened because of a an argument with one of the women and the local blacksmith's son over nails, of all things. He gave her cheek, she got angry with him and put what's known as a water charm or sea charm outside the smithy where he worked. He, so this was like a, a bucket of water with a, a hot bucket of coal water in with it. A hot coal, that's yeah. right. Thank you, Claire. Yeah, yeah, and steam coming out of it. When he spied it, he fell to the ground and started fitting and immediately people started talking about witchcraft and malice, malice it was called, and, and a charm. Basically, for a number of months, he pined in bed, he continued to fit, he lost huge amounts of weight, his body was found to be covered in scratches and bites, and uh, all sorts of things happened. I described them in the novel, and um, in the end, he named these seven people as being responsible for possessing him. It was uh, demonic possession, it was. And they were interred in the toll booth in Pittenween, which is a big sort of um, vertical structure of about three, four stories. And it's attached to the kirk, the church. They abut each other. And they were tortured. And the torture, they had a pricker brought in. It is unbelievable in an, in an effort to extract confessions. They confessed. Uh, one of them died in prison through starvation because the guards ate their food that was brought by other people. But finally, the Edinburgh magistrates got involved and um, demanded they were released. They were. The Reverend, uh, his name was Patrick Culper, he had a amazing control over the township during this time, him and the Baileys. He was deeply offended and became all self-righteous about it and kept warning the people that the women might be free, but they were still witches. So the town turned against the women, long story short, and uh, a, a dreadful murder resulted. So this is the story of all that and what happened to those women and how they were hounded and abused and locked up. Like uh, two of the women at different times were put in solitary confinement in a cave called St. Philan's Cave. I actually went into that cave at that point, I didn't know that um, Beatrix Lang and Janet Cornfoot were the two women had been locked in this cave at different times for weeks and weeks on end. And there's no light. There's no uh, – it's real sensory deprivation in many ways. And how they survived that, I don't know. But just what was done to them – and, of course, it caused a huge schism in the village because you had people who didn't believe what the Reverend was accusing these women of, the Reverend and the Baileys. And then you had those that did because, of course, it was a very religious place and they were superstitious and, and fishing had a whole lot of superstitions attached to it anyway. Not only that, there'd been famine, um, a, a huge proportion of the male population had been lost in the continuous war with France because, of course, uh, the Scottish uh, people had to provide uh, men for the English army. And then, of course, you had the division between the Jacobites, those that wanted a return of the Stuart line to the Scottish throne, and those who were supporters of the English. So it was just ripe for something to explode, and it did. And these women were the victims and indeed the survivors of that explosion. As soon as the women in the book were associated with the word witch, I'm thinking, get out of that town, get away. This is not <laughs> going to end well, ladies. And it's funny because in 2020, obviously, when we use the word witch, it means something different, but it's still quite a loaded and gendered term, isn't it? 
Yes, and I don't think it's a coincidence it's very close to bitch either for that matter, you know, but you're absolutely right. And in some ways it represents um, a, a move, moving away from social order, uh, being disruptive, and again, in really negative ways. And yet sometimes that can be very powerful and it can bring about important change, but that's not the way it's regarded even now. And of course, throughout the 80s and 90s, there was a, a movement, I guess, if you like, to uh, reclaim witchcraft and, and indeed with the Wicca movement and things like that. And again, that was seen as being very close to nature, as being very positive and life-affirming and very uh, maternal. But um, there's still those negative, incredibly negative connotations. And then there's also the humorous side of it where they, you know, we have uh, cartoonish witch characters. And yet when that word was levelled at you as a woman or indeed a man in that period that went on for a few hundred years, it, it was virtually a death sentence. And if it wasn't, it meant exile from, you know, family, home, community, because let's not forget too, it had the ripple effect where those closest to you, whether they were family or friends, were also tarnished by that word. So I think, I hope I explore all how that happened too in the book and yeah, it's a it's a really scary thing. I can't think of it in a light-hearted way anymore after um, doing this novel and knowing what happened. I guess the positive thing, though, after the Pitt and Weem witch hunt and, and what occurred and the injustices that were served out, which were horrific, was the laws did change in Scotland. And Scotland, of course, had an incredible amount of, of witch cases. There were over 3,000 in a couple of hundred years. And they say that at least 2,500 were killed, of which about 85% were women. Um, 21 in Pittenweem alone were burned or accused. And up the road in Anstruther, which is, as I said, just a half-hour walk away, there was only one. But yet in the next village further on, Crail, there were 25. So there, there was a real sort of pocket of accusations and punishment in that area, and indeed in in mid Scotland in the in the Mid Lothian area too. So, yeah, it's a it was a really powerful, dangerous thing to be a woman of intelligence, of resourcefulness, to be prepared to raise your head above the parapet, I guess, and challenge social norms. Have you ever been called a witch? Oh God, yes. <laughs> And the other. Yes, many times. In fact, um, I remember uh, as an academic back on the Sunshine Coast, um, getting into an argument with a reverend, funnily enough, you've just reminded me, Claire, up there uh, when I I made a, 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 I gave informed opinion about the fact that the Harry Potter books were really worthwhile and shouldn't be banned in schools because this particular school had just sought, uh, sought to ban them. And he called me the witch. <laughs> It's interesting. That I wear it proudly, sorry. <laughs> I wear the badge proudly. Yeah, yeah good on you. It, it is interesting, Karen, that that accusation was from a reverend and the villain in your novel is a priest. He was a real man, Reverend Cowper. Uh, but you've kind of fiddled with history a little bit in the writing of this book. What have you done? I did. Well, I changed the ending and I, I introduced, of course, fictional characters that were my vehicles for exploring what happened in, in Pitt and Weem in that period, my lead lady being a woman named Saoirse McIntyre. Um, well, it's funny, you know, I think when you are given a gift like this, like an amazing, powerful story that needs to be told, that needs to be heard, and we, we should not forget, I felt I owed it 
to the women and and the one man involved, Thomas Brown, and the people all affected by it, and the villages of Pitt and Weem then and now, um, to give it a better ending. I didn't like the way the real story ended. It was just injustice continuing. And my my social conscience, my feminist side, my human side, my humanity wouldn't allow it. So yeah, I changed the damn ending. It was my story. <laughs> and I, I won't so, I won't make you give away what happens because people No, should, I don't I'm trying not to do spoilers. <laughs> you yeah, should, yeah. should read the book. But I was wondering about this because you know you've written this very well-researched piece of historical fiction. And I wondered what the responsibility of the writer is to be true to history all the way through. I think that's a really great point to raise. And I think that's why my author's note at the end, I do tell the real story because I did feel that obligation. But I also thought, no, I'm I'm not a historian writing a nonfiction book. People, There are a few academic books where there's chapters and, and, and you can go to the records and read the real thing. My responsibility as a writer of fiction was to make this terrible, terrible, powerful story gripping, entertaining, heart-wrenching, heart-lifting as well. And I wanted people to walk away feeling that justice was served. Karen, we were speaking earlier about those efforts to reclaim the word witch, and I thought we should also talk about reclaiming the word fishwife. Um, Funnily enough, just before I came on air to speak to you, a woman in my office said, oh, I've got a fishwife hairdo today. I look a mess. And I actually went up to her and I said, you know, I just read a book about fishwives and they were pretty incredible women. I mean, how can we go about reclaiming the word fishwife, do you think? Wow, what a great story. I might borrow that and tell that fishwife hairdo. That's wonderful. Um, I think it's really important that we always examine the origins of words like that in language, particularly when we use it in a negative sense. And I think it's just when you start reading about these women and you realise the conditions in which they lived and worked under, the hard work they did, how supportive they were of the community, the men, each other. I mean, of course, there would have been arguments and there would have been awful people. We're not all saints and not all fishwives were saints, but they were really interesting dedicated women who tried to carve out a living. Okay, book show listeners, next time you meet an awesome independent woman, why don't you call her a fishwife? Let's bring it back as a compliment. Uh, Karen Brooks, I know you're writing another book at the moment. How's it going? Yeah, well, funny you should say that, Claire, because I started the new year deleting 40,000 words, which was all I'd managed to write in the last few months of last year. Um, The working title is The Mostly, in brackets, True Story of the Wife of Bath. And the good news is that since the 6th of January, I've written, I think I'm on 57,000 words, so it's flowing nicely now. I I went in the wrong direction. I'm now going in the right direction. And basically, yeah, it's the story of Alison, who's Geoffrey Chaucer's wife of Bath, which is one of the most popular tales, of course, in the Canterbury Tales. Mm -hmm. And she has a prologue and a tale. And it always fascinated me, yet again, because she was somebody involved in the wool trade. And she'd boast about her sexual conquest. She'd had five husbands and legally married at church door, but they're all dead. And she'd trot off on these pilgrimages to Jerusalem. She'd been three times to Rome, to Cologne, you know, to Canterbury. And I was fascinated by the fact that she's quite confronting and quite out there and this really remarkable woman that breaks every social convention and defies authority by saying that, you know, a successful marriage is one where women have mastery. 
Sorry, Karen, I'm really stuck on you deleting 40,000 words. Um, <laughs> that that seems terrifying. I mean, is that a terrifying, liberating thing to do, to select all and delete that much work? I was terrified, but I just felt, because I basically didn't write over the Christmas New Year period, I walked away and I wasn't happy. You know, it was just that I just sensed something was wrong and I didn't know how to move the story forward. And I was thinking, oh, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I just thought, I've got to delete it. Now, when I say I delete it, they're still there, but they're in another folder. And funnily enough, I haven't gone back to them at all. Not one word. I've just started afresh. And it was the right decision. But yes, I was terrified. And I was terrified I was still going in the wrong direction, but I know I'm not. I'm definitely not. Uh, Before I let you go, Karen, I read somewhere that you got a love of musical theatre from your grandma, I think. I'm a big musical theatre fan, so I thought before I let you go, you better give us some recommendations, a favourite musical or something that you really love. Oh, gosh. Well, look, I'm an ABBA tragic, so I love Mamma Mia, and it's (laughs) playing here in Hobart at the moment and I'm going to go and see it and I can't wait. But there's not much I don't like, actually. I really like uh, Mary Poppins, Les Mis, um, Phantom of the Opera, all of them. And I love Gilbert and Sullivan, you know. It, yeah. Oh, oh, and Wicked. How can anyone go past Wicked? <laughs> well, talk so about, talk about <laughs> a feminist rewriting of a classic story. It seems very appropriate for you, Karen. Karen Brooks, what a joy to meet you today. Oh, you too, Claire. Thank you so much for your fabulous questions and your time. Thank you. Karen Brooks is an author. Her new book is The Darkest Shore and it's published by HarperCollins. You're listening to Claire Nichols and The Book Show, available anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the program via your favourite podcast app or listen via the ABC Listen app. This is The Book Show, a place to celebrate books and words. So tell me, how do you feel about your dictionary? I love my dictionary and I love the indented border. Every word's in alphabetical order. Ergo, lost things always can be found. That's My Friend the Dictionary from one of my very favourite musicals, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And for the Australian novelist Rodney Hall, his dictionaries really are like friends. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he sang to them. Here's Rodney speaking about his love of language and the stack of reference books that help him to write. Well, I have the best of all dictionaries. I have in its compact form the 27-volume Oxford Dictionary in a single volume with microprint, and I've got the magnifying glass to go with it. I have different dictionaries for different purposes. Uh, for If there's any doubt about any spelling, I've got an ordinary old-fashioned little pocket Oxford that I just, if I think, does that have two Ps or one, I, I can just look it up without trouble. But much more important to me is a traditional thesaurus, which is, there's that red volume there, which is um, an old American edition of Roger's thesaurus, from the days when the thesauruses were not designed to make it easy for the reader, they were designed to make it comprehensive for the reader. So it's, it's laid out in a satisfying way to me where I get pages of synonyms and antonyms. And I'm not after a quick fix at any stage. I want to get... Because I've got to get the music right. I mean, it's like, as a, my first clarinet teacher said to me, a, a good player can get a 
can get a tune out of a hosepipe, but to have a good instrument makes it so much easier. And, and I think that, I think a, a good writer can cobble together something that, that definitely will engage our interest. But why all the struggle if you, if you develop an instrument, I, I say this to the young, if you study the language, you think about it, not, I don't mean study it at university, just, just get a dictionary, get a thesaurus, think about the nature of words and where they come from. And we've got such a glorious language, all, all languages are, but our, each is sort of unique in its own way, but this is a glorious language. We commonly use words like veranda without thinking they come from India, for example. You know, we're not conscious of that to begin something is a Germanic thing, but to commence it is Latin. Um, and then that applies, for example, to meats, which very interestingly, the animal is a cow, but the, the meat is beef. We don't ever talk, we don't ever say, I'll have two kilos of cow. The way our language works is that certain functions that the language has, the older functions, tend to be Germanic, like Norse, Icelandic, close connections. And the post-1066, the, the language becomes the court language of France, and we, we fleece that of as much as we possibly can. And it's the mix that's so exciting. And then all these exotic things like hurricane, you know, hurricanes are... Mexican word, word from Mexico, but the person in the street, perfectly happy if you say the wind's so high it was a hurricane, they know what you mean. So it's, it's part of our language. We don't, but the writer needs to be aware. Where does it come from? How does it come to be like that? The big Oxford Dictionary it's, it, why it's such a standard work is that the word stand, S-D-A-N-D, in that dictionary has, I think, 16 by memory, 16 pages, which I counted up with 114 uses of the word stand. If you go to a cheap school dictionary, it will simply tell you that stand is like standing up, like a stand-up desk or a music stand or whatever or take a stand, and they'll, they'll have maybe six or seven, but, you know, where are the other hundred? For That's okay, the general public doesn't need to know them, but the writer does. The writer does need to know what those riches are, because they all carry a kind of charisma. They've all got their own... Because words don't come as words, they come in phrases, don't they? It's, it's, it's not what your vocabulary is, that get, that's a side issue. It, it's how elastic and dynamic the sentences are that you create out of that vocabulary. And getting that right and getting the elements of it to bounce off each other. So the reader doesn't see this, they just experience it as lively style. But the writer needs to know what, the, what they're doing. They need to know how you can do without Z and A very frequently because they relax, they slacken the rhythm. And it, it, sometimes if you just extract syllables here and there, you can take a very ordinary sentence and tighten it up and it suddenly comes alive. 
Rodney Hall's latest novel is the Miles Franklin shortlisted A Stolen Season. It's published by Picador. I want a little sugar in my bowl. I want a little sweetness down in my soul. I could stand some loving, oh, so bad. Jamaican writer and academic Cadella Forbes has an interest in sugar, but for her, it's not so sweet. Cadella is keenly aware of just how this crop shaped the colonial past of Jamaica and its modern history. Now, Sarah Lestrange has been reading Cadella's latest novel. It's called A Tall History of Sugar. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Claire. Now, this isn't a straight retelling of Jamaica's history. No, it's not. Cadella weaves elements of its history through this story about two soulmates and in amongst it all, it's about how they navigate the newly independent Jamaica and its brutal history of slavery. And Cadella's knowledge of rural Jamaica, its language and oral traditions really comes through in this book, which is a little bit magical and a little bit whimsical, but... Sugar probably won't taste as sweet after you've read it. So where does this tale begin? Cadella begins a tall history of sugar just before Jamaica's independence in 1962. In fact, she begins it four years before, and here she tells me why. Because it is sort of on the cusp of a sort of in-between space between the colonial period and the beginning of independence, and I, I'm thinking that it gives a nice intro into the kinds of complexities that are involved in moving from one stage to another. So you're going to be getting the the, the narratives of freedom and self-making, if you like, at a kind of high point, uh, along with the kinds of real, real legacies of colonialism that are very instant and um, and there, the there-ness of that in, in that particular moment. And the novel is called A Tall History of Sugar. Clearly the fortunes of sugar are bound up with the fortunes of the main characters and the country. We know it because of the history of that region. But why is it a tall history? Uh, The short answer to that is because I didn't want to call it a tall tale. (laughs) In other (laughs) words, a tall tale suggests that I'm pulling your leg and it's a very serious book in historically uh, I've couched it as a kind of fairy tale it's a fairy tale which is also a very accurate history and I wanted to do that kind of glide between history as in as sort of factual you know information if you like uh, although that's a very inadequate definition of history and history as a fairy tale I've, I've always felt that fairy tales are not really these nice uh, stories for children, but really the alternative histories that the people, um, the folk, if you like, tell, you know, which are not the kinds of stories that get into the history books, but really are the alternatives to the narratives that the powerful tell. It's a it's a different worldview about what happens, but also that kind of shaping is very in keeping with the way Jamaicans think, I would say, that way of 
of not making boundaries between worlds, between the naturalistic world, if you like, um, the everyday concept of the factual and the logical critical on the one hand and the idea of the spiritual, the otherworldly, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, you know, we sort of cross those boundaries very easily <laughs> as a kind of everyday way of being in the world, which is very Jamaican. So we've mentioned the fairy tale, but how have the oral traditions of rural Jamaica influenced your storytelling as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, because um, the way I tell the stories is the way I was told stories growing up. Hmm. Uh, one of the, it's, it's part of that tradition as well. I, I remember. So, so my, you grew up in rural Jamaica. I grew up in rural Jamaica, in a, in the west, in a parish called Hanover. And my great uncle used to tell us a lot of stories. Um, that's my brothers, my sisters, and I, and me. And I remember being fascinated by the way he would always tell the story with himself at the centre. He told us these stories about monsters that he encountered, <laughs> monsters from the folklore on the roads, travelling late at midnight. And I used to think that they were real stories, meaning that they really happened to him. It was only <laughs> much later that I realised that here was this master craftsman, really, you know, giving us these stories from the folklore, but putting himself at the centre of them as though they really happened to him. But again, that way of, that kind of expatiatory way of telling that, that sort of skipping from one place to another, not going in a linear direction, and also not making boundaries between uh, the naturalistic world and the supernatural world, if you like, um, that is just so, so Jamaican. It just <laughs> felt natural to me. <laughs> you know? yes. and, and that storytelling yes. is, is throughout this novel, isn't yes. it? Because yes. we have one, it's told from one person's perspective, Ariane. Yes, yes. But it flits between the future and the past and the present. Yes. And yes. it's from her perspective and she's not always... She's not always present at the times that the stories are being told. And the stories are being told. So it's like she, she inhabits these many voices. Sometimes it's, it's I, Ariane. Sometimes she says, here is Ariane interrupting the story when she's talking about Moshe in the third person. And she wants to interject her anger or her outrage <laughs> about something that has happened. So she flits back and forth in terms of narrative voice voices. And of course, she she doesn't tell the story in that kind of straight line because the story of colonialism this in the Caribbean, the story of colonialism as a whole, I think, the story of the ways in which Caribbean peoples have, you know, struggled to deal with that doesn't, you know, they, they don't go in a straight line, you know, and our, our, we, our histories didn't begin with some sort of affiliation to a known motherland or fatherland in a very specific way that then, you know, you can draw your family tree or your genealogy in a straight line. We've got these gaps, these missing places, these silences because of the, the experience of slavery, the experience of having been torn away from original Homes of Spirit, to borrow a phrase from um, George Lamming. Mm. The story of having to, you know, improvise, you know, create something new out of something torn. So that, is not, that doesn't make for a linear mm. narrative. Mm. Yeah. 
let's talk about the story. Mushi has almost biblical origins. His yes. adoptive mother finds him abandoned, floating in a basket. Yes. Tell me about him and how you came to him. Uh, many paths, but I would say the one that kept resonating in my mind for a long time. So he, he's been cooking in my head for a couple of years. Um, was my my sojourn in the United States. I've lived in the U.S. for for 16 years. I became a citizen in um, 2015. And when you come from the Caribbean, you there's a question that may not occur to you if you live there oh. all your life. But if you live in the United States, this question or some relative of it is almost bound to occur to you, I think. And the question is, suppose there was somebody born whose race you could not tell or to whom you could not assign a race, mm -hmm. since race is something that you know, is a construct we invent. What then? <laughs> you know, because the, the issue of race is so upfront and so in your face, it seems to color just about everything you can think of. And um, in, 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 in that, especially now in these times. Mm -hmm. And so that thing kept nagging at my head. It was a worm. It became an obsession in my mind. And so this, so it, it led to Moshe, you know, mm -hmm. I should say, hence Moshe, you know, this boy who is born... Without skin. Yes, without skin. That, that's a phrase I, I use, yes. It's a very and compelling you, phrase. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know. How can that be? I mean, obviously he's got the physical, um, yes. you know, the organ of skin. Yeah, and it doesn't do the things that skin is supposed to do. Yes. I'm quarrelling with this this idea of race because the thing is that it is only skin deep. You know, the, the science of it is that the, the percentage of of our human human biology that gives coloration is so small that I can't even find the the number to call. <laughs> you know, you know what the number is. Um, because although there's such a range of colors in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, uh, you know, during slavery there were sixteen words for color, different shades of color and racial mix. Really? There is absolutely none that can code Moshe because it's not. The, the whiteness of any race that has been seen. This is the prism through which we read his life and his yes. interactions in Jamaica and later when he goes to Britain. Yes, the prism of skin. Mm. Yes, And absolutely. then Arian he meets on the first day of primary school and yes. she's very different from yes. Moshe. But they have a special bond and they think of themselves as twins. Yes. How is she different from him? Well, they are very similar in some ways, but she is she looks the opposite of him. He she's he's sort of very feminine in if you use the traditional terms. She's more like a boy. Her father brought her up to be like a boy. She's tough and she's strong. She's very, very dark. She's what the children at school call black beauty. Mm. Um she's aggressive and fiercely protective of him. Um, and she 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 does physical fights. You know, she fights for him on the first day of school. Yeah, you she's know, and, tough. and she yes, and she can do milit. You know, she does a martial art of taekwondo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she beats up two boys. He, on the other hand, can't fight. You know, he physical exertion. You know, leaves him bleeding, kind mm. of thing. So they kind of map onto each other in complementary, you know, and yet opposite ways. 
Um, she says that it seems as though in their twinship when they were made, um, she got the all the skin mm-hmm. that belonged to them both. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And is it significant that you focus on the children of this new country? Yes. Um, but I, I, when I answer that question, I confess I'm cheating a little. <laughs> because when you, sometimes when people ask me a question, I say, oh, this works. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I hadn't thought about it before. Uh, I, you know, because if you ask me what I was thinking when I wrote the story... I was really thinking that I wanted to give an arc of a life. So it made sense to start when he was young and go right up to the, you know, to when he dies. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know, also that arc would also be carrying us through this process of move the movement from the colonial era to the present, what I call the age of Brexit and Donald Trump. Part of the fairy tale telling of this story is that Moshi is ex- allergic to sugar. Ariane's father has a, a hmm. curse as a result of the sugar harvesting it, time. Yes. Uh, and so what is the role of sugar here? It was the the main crop under slavery, you know, in the same way that it was cotton in the United States, sugar was what made the colonies in the Caribbean the the source of of capital, the riches of the European empires. Um, so I, I kind of struggled to find the words to talk about what it means because it's so easy to say metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I think, no, it's not metaphor, it's something deeper than that. I say metonym, you know, a a piece of what the history was. But it's so crucial, a piece of the history. It's so fundamental to the very advent of modernity. You know, it, it has everything to do with what happens to Moshe and Ariane. Now, throughout the story, Cadella, you dance between... Jamaican English, Queen's English, Patois, Creole, um, versions in between. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Did that just come naturally? It came very naturally, um, but it also made sense artistically, I think, and realistically, because that is the reality of the Jamaican encounter with language. I wanted to make sure that my characters spoke in the way that they speak, if they were real people, mm. you know, kind of thing. And um, But I also wanted to make the narrative accessible to a very wide audience, as wide an English-speaking audience as possible. Um, yeah, you never feel so- left out because while there might be... Um, the Creole, you then sort of explain it in a natural way. Yes. I like reading it aloud, actually. I must yes. tell you that I like well. this book. <laughs> yeah, I don't usually say that about my, my books. You know, in fact, if, I actually have reread the book a couple of times just to enjoy myself. And normally when I write a book, I don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> well, what, yes. isn't that great? Usually authors are like, oh, no, take it away. It's good. Exactly. You can embrace it. That's why this one is different for me. I really enjoy, re- enjoy reading it. <laughs> well, well, let's have you read it. Um, we're coming to the end of our conversation, so it's fitting yes. for a, a conversation 
conversation that's twirling around fairy tales and oral traditions that we um, end at the beginning. So can you read from the beginning? I will do that. Yeah, I think I'll just do the first page. Long ago, when teachers were sent from Britain to teach in the grammar schools of the West Indian colonies, it was Great Britain then, not Little England as it is now, after Brexit and the fall of empire. They lived in Jamaica, near a town called Orocabessa-on-Sea, a poor fisherman and his wife, who was a farmer and a seamstress. And one morning they found a pale child in bushes in a basket made of reeds. The man's name was Noah Fisher, and his wife's name was Rachel. They adopted the child and named him Moshe, which is to say Moses, which in translation means drawn out. And they named him in this way because Rachel was a Yahweh's and because the bushes in which they found him were a tangle of sea grapes running low as a reed bed along the ground on cliffs above the sea. And when she found him, for it was she who first saw the child, the spray from below had made a pool around the basket, so that in another few moments it would have sailed. Which is to say that in a manner of speaking, the little boy was indeed drawn out of water. The grandmother, a long-headed woman of the countryside, tells me, You know, need figure so. You do not need this long explanation of watery origins, since the ancestors of every Jamaican came over the sea, most of them in the ship's kaka. And moreover, are we not an island surrounded by water? So anyone born and found here is a child of water, and no more to be said. But this child that was found did not look like anyone who came over in the holes of ships 300 years ago. So it is important to give all the details of his name and how he was found. Cadella Forbes there, she was speaking to Sarah Lestrange and A Tall History of Sugar is published by Canongate. That's the book show for today. Thanks so much for joining me and make sure you tune in again next week when the Canadian writer Michael Christie will be my guest. Until then, I'll leave you with these little words. Not for all North Carolina Not for all my little words Not if I could write For all my little words, it doesn't matter what I do. Not for all my little words. Hi, readers. It's Kate Evans here from RN's Bookshelf. Do you know what you're going to read next? Well, here's an idea. Every week, Cassie McCullough and I bring you a selection of new fiction from Australia and the rest of the world, and guests who love talking books as much as we do. Subscribe to The Bookshelf on the ABC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.